0: Couch.com. Streaming wellness into your lives.
1: You're listening to a quirky journey, the Healthy Family Podcast with your hosts Joe Witten and Puab Kasab. Hi everybody, and today we have with us Dr. Igor Trivizian, and we're going to be talking about his awesome new book Staying Healthy. Um, we have lots of questions for you, Dr. T, so I hope you're ready.
0: Ready as I ever be. Okay. You <laughs> can always edit out my answers, I gather.
1: <laughs> no, we need your answers. <laughs>
0: <laughs> if politically incorrect.
1: Oh, well, good fun.
0: <laughs> from the look of the New South Wales ballot paper, um, it'd be pretty hard to be that. Did you see the picture of it? I didn't. It's huge.
1: What was it? What
0: is it? It, it had, um, it was almost like a... The size of a small tablecloth.
1: Oh, <laughs>
2: ours
1: was pretty big too. All right. Oh, well, yes. So we were just <coughs> having like a we were just having a little chat before we started, and um, we were looking through your book, which is fascinating, and it tells us all sorts of things about different minerals and vitamins and things in your food and what to look for. Um, we would love it if you would give us a little bit of an overview on your book and why you wrote it and what it's for, and then we can ask you some questions about it.
0: Yeah, I guess maybe I'm addicted to writing books. So are we. Um, <laughs> <laughs> certainly <laughs> addicted to off. reading it's them. Ridiculous. But, you know, sometimes you read things and you go, oh, why didn't somebody write a book about so-and-so? Why didn't yes. someone do an app for so-and-so, you know?
2: Yeah.
0: And so I think I've written in that way perhaps because I I started doing a course in media studies and they were saying the best journalists were the ones that did pick those niches because you know they editors get copy and text all the time they go oh more of the same and then Mm -hmm. something different comes along and said oh yes I see what they've done here they've picked this gap it's a bit like in cricket so (laughs) I uh, looking at all the things that I knew and looking like you can go to health food shops and and spend a whole day there, almost trial and error, yeah. finding things that might suit you. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, this the same thing applies with cooking. How do you choose what you need when when you go when you do your shopping, for instance? What motivates you to go down the, you know, the the steak aisle or the the nuts or the you know the citruses? What what most? Why do we have that? That feeling is it is it really random or is there some you know other um, basic program running because animals do this Mm
2: -hmm.
0: and I guess I was thinking well why do people choose things do they choose things just because they're in front of them or is there there's some kind of need Does the body kind of bypass their conscious state and say look you're low molybdenum so I think you should get a dozen eggs this time you know
2: Mm.
0: so and A couple of things over the years, I've been to various conferences and meetings, and that. And there was one guy, I'm not a big fan of him, but he wrote a book called Dead Doctors Don't Lie.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. And one of the things that he says in that book is that paying attention to nutrition in animals has eradicated about 600 diseases in farming.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: And Even if that's an exaggeration, even if it's 100, he's a vet, by the way, Mm -hmm. we probably should know that that's true. I thought, (laughs) wow, they obviously, vets and people in those industries make links between the symptoms that animals have and the nutritional deficiencies. They don't even think twice about it.
2: Mm.
0: it's commonplace and in some areas of the world it's more commonplace and they've got usual suspects you know like magnesium or selenium or zinc mm. and these kind of things so that's stuck in my mind that you know the at least vets and farmers and agricultural can see this this link and I thought well the same thing must happen with humans what would if what would happen if we paid attention to these deficiencies in humans how many diseases could be eradicate? Mm. but there's no medical model for that
2: yeah
0: no one has ever come up with a medical model although doctors, you know, when you, if you sort of corner them and say, right, you know, what do you think about all the deficiencies that you see? They go, well, I don't see any deficiencies. <laughs> oh, what about that? those patients who sent off for iron infusions? Oh, yeah, well, there's iron. Yeah, there's always going to be iron deficient people. Yeah, there's, you know. And I said, well, occasionally, what about those people with, you know, Crohn's disease and intestinal problems and you, see, you need to give them B12 injections? Oh, yeah, yeah, there's a 12 deficiencies in some people. That's true. <laughs> Um, and what about the vitamin D problem? You know, Australians are more um, paranoid about going out in the sun with seeing all this low. Ah, yeah, well, they're low vitamin Ds. And so you keep going with this, and then I say, oh, yeah, that's right. One of my patients did have zinc deficiencies. She insisted I do the level, and that was low. And so what they're dealing with, they've put them in one category of deficiencies that these are, are special cases, but they mm-hmm. don't, necessarily make the link that perhaps all these cancer patients who turned up this morning might have been selenium deficient their whole life mm. and I think it's, it's because no one has really instructed them in that they, mm. they, they tend to as soon as it leaves something that's comfortably medical it becomes more new age-ish yes and yet if you go back in farming for a hundred years or so there's been no doubt that deficiencies cause diseases in animals and you know we live off those animals and off that land Mm -hmm. so that sort of stuck in my mind and I thought well at at least if, if if people had guidelines what to look for and they knew what to eat perhaps they could um circumvent that problem by just by being empowered about it and it's not just um this guy Joel Wallach there was a professor of the department of soils in missouri called albrecht and he realized that um if you got the base cations in the soil right sodium potassium calcium magnesium Mm
2: -hmm.
0: the health of the animals would improve and the health of the community that was living off that land would improve Mm -hmm. so he wasn't some new age hippie from california he was the (laughs) Professor of the of the a, of a university and he was the director of the Department of soils in Missouri mm-hmm. and many of the farmers learnt to analyze their soils Based on his work. Yeah And um, and it was you know validated although and he was very scathing of NPK fertilizers the um, nitrogen and potassium And phosphorus fertilizers he said you're not fixing the problem long term using these fertilizers because they've been quite around quite a long time you know he died in 1974 so you can if he was giving about MPK fertilizers before his death you can see that we've still been using them way after his death
2: yeah
0: so all things were weighing on my mind Um, how do you, you know we should open the door for people to recognise deficiency states because you know there's obvious ones and then there's what they call marginal deficiencies where people are prone to getting certain deficiencies mm-hmm. i suppose iron in menstruating females is a bit like that isn't it mm-hmm. like if your ferritins on the borderline you have a heavy period you've gone from a marginal deficiency to an obvious one
2: mm-hmm.
0: Um, zinc is like that as well. When you get stressed or go, a child goes through a growth spurt, the zinc level will fall because it's mm. being utilised for certain processes temporarily.
3: Okay. Hoping that
0: there's a catch-up plan. Yeah. And in general, what I, I, in the book that I've written, there's several sections to it. Um, i was just looking
1: at the bit with zinc, actually. The
0: introduction. Yeah. What is deficiency and what is suboptimal? Mm. And how do the plants put these things you know if you if we could wind back the clock to an era where indigenous people settled and if they matched the environment they could survive if it was too harsh they couldn't survive or maybe over time um, there would be certain type of genetics that would survive in a harsher environment Mm -hmm. you know this type of thing we've completely overridden that we've plonked Europeans in an area that that technically wouldn't have um, supported a large European population because we've been using things like NPK fertilizers and machinery
2: Mm -hmm.
0: and clearing and monoculture which have created Lots of issues. NPK fertilisers have been, you know, notorious for creating mon- for monoculture um, mm. industries, and they create pests. So then you've got to have a chemical industry to go with your fertiliser industry, hmm. and the only people that benefit are the fertiliser companies.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, so, so the so I'm talking about plants and how they, um, you know, they. Uh, Get the nutrients into that, and then how we digest those things. Because it's not a given that people can digest yeah. everything.
2: We yeah. assume it is.
0: Like I remember my, you know, gastric physiology lessons, and they assumed that everybody could make trypsin and chymotrypsin on demand if they mm. had protein in their stomach. They assume that everyone could get the pH low enough in the in, in the stomach to activate those enzymes. And they assume that all the mechanisms that tell the next step, you know, how much fat is in this meal, how much carb is in this meal, how much protein is in this meal, better tell the liver to release X amount of bile salts, better if the meal's large enough, you better tell the gallbladder to help, how much, um, you know, amino should the intestines make, all these little things that get calculated. Mm. They don't always work. No. I think some people genetically are, are, are bad at doing that. And maybe those people, their diet. Those people would th- would thrive if the diet was right. If the diet, if they were trying to eat what everyone else is eating, in a diluted gene pool, then they're not going to survive.
2: Mm. And
0: we've found this out. Um, I think there are it's a significant number of people who have who are born with mal digestion. And and then we also. So it's not a given that you, if you eat a certain food, you're going to absorb it, but indigenous people if you ever look at regional cuisines did you ever wonder sometimes why did they pick this food why did they combine those ingredients is it just personal taste is that what makes up um their particular diet you know that there are all these cooking programs where, you know um food safari and whatnot Mm. they go around all these people and they go to regional areas, and the really old food, You know, people going back to indigenous and um, you know culturally based foods, they must have had a reason for putting ingredients together. Is it that those people were eating more of something to compensate for the soil deficiency?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Or is it something innate? Is this the same as animals will go to certain plants when they're yeah. sick?
2: Yeah.
0: Is that why, you know, in Indian food, Mm -hmm. In the south where the hottest food is and the most inclement of the climates There are theories that that the food and the the Environment will create rancidity very quickly So you need something that has natural antibiotics and hence any of the spices that they use would offset that issue
2: You see what I mean? Yeah,
0: yeah, so the and then you know the Vietnamese use so many um, herbs in their soups just almost equal volume, <clears throat> excuse me, of weight of herbs. So I think that um, if you look at indigenous cultures, they tend to maximise their nutrients and minimise their deficiencies by the ch- food that they choose. But here in our Western world, we just eat the same thing. Mm-hmm. We just eat what we what, what's there, do you know what I mean?
2: Yeah.
0: And that plus, you know, the maldigestions that we see, that plus the the soil deficiencies and perhaps the the uh, incorrect farming practices
2: mm-hmm.
0: or perhaps suboptimal farming practices that create those foods. This is we've got all these issues. So even just going through a health food shop and finding a supplement might not improve mm. that because the very reason you can't absorb. Iron is the reason why you won't absorb the iron supplement.
2: Right. So I've
0: tried to <clears throat> put a little bit of that in the book as well to say that that you know you need to look at digestion, and if you if you're getting to a certain point where you're not digesting, you need to have it you know have some sort of objective help with it. so yeah, the the first part is you know like the biochemistry, why are these things so special? Why is iron special? Why is copper special? Do we have issues with too much or too little? Generally, we understand it's easy to understand the issues when the um, The level is low because it's you can imagine like a, a car and the petrol level is low or the oil level is low It's probably not going to run optimally But we do have issues sometimes when these things get too high people iron overload or copper mm-hmm. overload and then some certain I looked at I couldn't cover everything but I looked at things like vitamin b12 because that's very
2: mm. Pertinent
0: to people who are vegetarian vegan or even people with significant digestive issues in the small intestine which are definitely more of We yeah. Understand there are more of them now than they mm. used to be For sure. <laughs> And then vitamin C and vitamin D have their own you know quirks and characteristics so there's a there was I, I singled them out as in to go through them and say why are these special why are your amino acids special why is your protein special mm. and then the last part of the book was the you know the a to z of these um common deficiencies so yeah there's the, the background i suppose of that is the medical doctor who who gets to to see the symptoms measure the nutrients, correct the nutrients, see the symptoms improved. I did that mm. for years and years and years to double and triple check that what everyone else was writing was true. Yeah. Uh, if someone had zinc deficiency, their immune system was probably going to be suboptimal mm. somewhere. <clears throat> They'd be more prone to sore throats and upper respiratory tract infections. They'd be more prone to gastroenteritis. Mm. And And so you would expect then that if you gave zinc to people who are predisposed to that, you would see an improvement in that. And there were studies to show exactly that. Mm -hmm. So then the next question is, why would the zinc be low in these people? Why, and fair enough, you say, well, their dietary intake um, is poor in zinc. They live in an area where the zinc is low. But maybe they're making it worse by having a lot of grains in their diet. Mm
2: -hmm. Because
0: the phytates in the grains reduce the absorption of zinc and that isn't just a theory that is is a problem in several countries on on this planet including mexico peru and indonesia and because of their high phytate diets they have to fortify Uh their food with zinc they've already figured it out no they didn't have to wait for the epidemic of, of zinc deficiency they've already preempted that problem and it's the same with folate you know there are 39 countries in this world that um, they just like the food has to be um, fortified with folic acid so
1: when you say somebody... um, when you say they naturally do that in their diet can you just give an example um, like a practical example like for instance I know in Mexico you have the the corn that's soaked in the lime and they make the masa harina and you have that with the beans so is that the kind of thing you're talking about
0: no it's the government the government Ah, oh, um, okay i thought
1: you meant naturally if,
0: if, no it, the coming back to that is quite interesting because the um the high phytate diets will um reduce the um uptake of zinc from foods in that same meal and there's a theory you know there's a in, when the first corn plantations were planted in Central America, they were a, a people called Olmec. Mm. And they were originally seafarers who came aboard, came on shore, and then realized that they could grow corn three or four times a year. So they stopped doing the seafaring thing and started. Doing corn, sure. they also started to make these balls from um, the rubber plants, and they've got some some of these balls are four and a half thousand years old, ah. and this is, became the ball game of Mesoamerica, which had various incarnations, including up to the Aztecs, yes. and that their whole, um, I suppose infrastructure was based on corn which is not a complete protein and also is relatively high in phytates Mm. you get to a stage where if you have generations Mm. living on that you're going to see evidence of zinc deficiencies and that's one of the Mm. one of the things that they thought why the aztecs practiced cannibalism was to get Mm. the protein and the zinc that they were missing from the food chain as a result of that massive um monoculture of corn
2: Mm.
0: sure they had you know rabbits and eagles and various other things that but as your population increases you reduce your sort your food chain as as you you reduce your um natural food chain that would balance your corn only diet Mm. and so they had a whole industry of of eating their um prisoners. It was amazing. And you know, they all, if you read about it from a, their spiritual thing was that the the God's foods should be humans. So they weren't going to sacrifice themselves, They they would sacrifice prisoners. And they had these whole military campaign tactics, not to kill too many of their enemy, just to really to to get this terms of surrender, so that they could keep this food chain going, wow. and they their captains and generals would capture their um, their prisoners and keep them and fatten them up on their tortillas, <laughs> and then they would sacrifice them, and then they would bring back the bodies and and share the food with with all of their their house, as it were. Wow. So Gross. why <laughs> go to all that trouble? in you know, a and and they were on a high corn diet, which had begun you know a few thousand years before by the Olmec. So I think there are compensations. The the other ingredients that you choose do do influence the absorption, and over time, it just becomes cultural, becomes a regional oddity.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so, but in those countries, Peru, Indonesia, and Mexico, the government legislates that. Um, there'd be zinc in the flour that's made from corn from yeah. corn flour because not yeah. everyone grows. when you get to a certain size of population You don't you stop growing corn yourself and you're reliant on somebody else to grow it
1: Yeah,
0: yeah, it's interesting, isn't it?
1: very mm, Yeah where would the
2: so,
3: that they, They'd be fortifying the food come from because like I've seen uh, when people say this is iron fortified um, I've seen videos where people like uh, will sort of grind down the cornflakes and then use a magnet and all mm. these iron <laughs> Will come up. Um, so, is the source of zinc that they That put sounds
0: It like needs to go on Mythbusters. <laughs> <laughs> but, or, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, I don't know about that, about the cornflakes. I, I don't think, I haven't bought any since the last century, but i have to go and do that
1: now. Yeah, you have to try it and let us know.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. I guess it would depend on what country we're talking about. With, with
3: the fortified foods, however, like the, my, I guess my my real question is, when you fortify food with uh, these additions into it, like you add your zinc or your iron or whatever, um, that doesn't seem like it would be the same as actually eating it from. And oh actually,
0: no.
3: no, it wouldn't be. And so, like for our audience who are looking at take any step that they can to improve their own health, um, we'd, we'd you can, be looking... You're at better thermomix. off to adjust your diet as if right, you, okay. you knew what you mm-hmm. needed to eat extra. And that's
0: why the book tells you that you know if you're low in zinc and you have a thermomix, then the olive tapenade is actually a really good way to bring up your zinc level
2: mm-hmm. if you're
0: not eating oysters. And right. the other thing posed about the book was looking at the different um, mm-hmm. dietary Restrictions that some people have. Well, the omnivores can eat everything. Um, they don't always make the best choices, but <laughs> at least they don't have any restrictions. And then you know the gluten-free people—they will have significant restrictions um, in in their diet. And then the vegans, you know, obviously are not going to be able to eat oysters. Um, you know, as a as a source of zinc, they've got to f- pick other foods. So. Um, You've got to find the thing that that suits you, I suppose. Even if you have to eat, you know, a handful of olives every day mm. to maintain the zinc level. I
1: but have.
3: There would be countries
0: where they would. Mm. Yeah.
1: So
3: olives.
1: Is uh... olive oil... Yeah,
3: go is ahead. Olive oil for olives, or I'm do not you... sure
0: the oil has the zinc in it. Uh, it might do. I've i not seen a mineral analysis of olive oil. I oil. guess it depends on how it's made, is not it? Mm. Cold pressed would have more zinc
1: in it. You would think so. Um, We've actually had a few questions from vegetarians and vegans wanting to know some of these things because obviously um, with the diet that I do, um, we're working on healing the gut and we're working on being able to absorb more of these minerals and vitamins through our food and getting them in through food more than through supplements. Um, But I don't really know what to tell people who are not able to eat the meat and the broths and everything so I thought I'd pick your brain about it a bit I noticed you have a little bit about it like you said in the book um for vegetarians and vegans and things that they need to be aware of and things that they can eat um can I just quickly ask you have you got some tips for them on um just absorbing these nutrients into their in their food. Like if they've got a leaky gut or they've got gut issues, some some kind of tips for them. What sort of things that they can do?
0: Well, apart from getting a detailed analysis mm. of of you know their digestive tract and what, what issues they're having with it, the first thing is to try uncombining the food. So having their carbs and protein at separate times,
2: okay.
0: because in an unhealthy gut, that's the most stressful um, combination of things. That would
1: be for anyone, uh, is it? Really, yeah, it's
0: for anyone. Yeah. It's not really. But um, if you're trying to optimise digestion, and it's because, like many of them, will make a like a complete meal, um, but they might not absorb. A significant amount of it because of that stress of carbohydrate and protein it's because hmm. carbohydrate digestion begins in the mouth and the other thing is to make sure you really chew your food because if you don't that definitely stresses things further down like hmm. gulping the food down quickly and also making sure that you've got you know good teeth to do that if you're hmm. on a A diet that's high in nuts, that's really stressful on your teeth as well. So Mm. making sure you have a good dentition for it. Chewing the food. Having your rice separate to the rest of the meal. Um, I know that probably sounds crazy, but (laughs) if you're trying to to heal the gut, then that might be something you could do at least at the beginning while you're... Because the worst thing is to half digest the food in a person with leaky gut and then that, those peptide fragments, the, the, the half or you know, quarter digested proteins, slip through those gaps mm. um, and then create immune reactions or even yeah. damage the intestine themselves or create an immunological reaction locally. So at the worst, um, you know, decombining the food at least gives the carbs a chance to get digested. So how far
1: apart do you have to have them?
0: Probably an hour. Okay. So they can have their, you know, their, their porridge or their, their quinoa or their chia bowl or, you know, um, in the morning and, or just have plain rice. You know, the Chinese and I think the Thais um, have rice congee in the morning. Mm. Like a rice, a gruel. Yep. Um, And that's a simple, bland meal.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, Yeah, so food uncombining, you know, chewing, all those kind of things. The next question is whether raw food or cooked food works better for some people.
2: Yeah.
0: You know, there's a a very polarised out there, raw food and cooked food. In some ways, cooking was a good thing. In some ways, it was a bad thing
2: hmm.
0: um, in terms of human development. Um, I suppose the yeah, they can argue either way. Um, I suppose a good thing about cooking was that you did perhaps sterilize the food in some ways, reduced its ability to harm you. But then when you when you cook foods, you create other compounds that are carcinogenic so you know these um nitrosamines and the caramelized compounds when you brown food you create carcinogens
2: Mm.
0: so toast for instance is more carcinogenic than the bread that you started with (laughs) yeah i know so Mm. um you know there's various grades of cooking the bread is already cooked you know so um, yeah raw food or and some people I know my patients will say look I went on this raw food diet and I felt absolutely fantastic and the next one will come in and say oh I cannot digest raw food I have to have (laughs) it cooked at least and perhaps that's saying something about their innate pattern of digestion maybe they need some assistance that's created by you know denaturing the food with the cooking I mean you do get some denaturing that's why um, you know, Brussels sprouts will go from crunchy to incredibly soggy, and mm. peas, etc. Um, so perhaps with the vegetarians, do some experiments and find out what you can digest raw and what you need to
3: cook, mm.
0: and stick with it. Don't try to to go against the grain with it.
3: So are you saying that it's better if you can eat it raw, eat it raw, otherwise cook it?
0: You yeah, well. you know, okay. apart from potatoes and those sort of root vegetables, I suppose. Always you cook. can sort of do it, yep. but it's a bit chewy, isn't it? And turnips, probably not that pleasant. <laughs> um, yeah, so, like, you know, the Chinese, they don't have anything raw. Mm. For centuries, none of their vegetables are raw. In, there was one exception, I think, that, that broke the rule, and it was a relatively recent... Um, invention by some Hong Kong chefs called Sang Choi Bao Mm. and it's um, either pigeon mince or pork mince and some other condiments um, fried and then put in a lettuce leaf, a raw lettuce leaf, and it caused such a stir because mm-hmm. the Chinese are going, what? We always cook our lettuce. Why would we have it oh, raw? really?
1: They cook
0: it. Yeah, and you never eat the garnishes in Hong Kong restaurants. That was the first thing I learned when I was in there because it was probably being there from the day before and just recycled. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> it was just an unwritten rule that you didn't eat the garnish. Okay. Yeah. It was just a show. <laughs> um not having a go at them, it's just how those. Yeah, it's interesting.
1: Work. Yeah.
0: Um, so, yeah, they've not re- really eaten anything raw. It tells you something, mm. doesn't it? It's Always cooked their vegetables, even if it was lettuce. Wow. The brassicas, et cetera.
1: Do you think that could um, be that people are innate, you know, that innately know that they do better with raw or cooked? Could it be to do that? I with think the- so. Could it be to do with I egg, have patients
0: gut? who say the worst thing they can possibly eat is a fresh salad
1: yeah see i was always like no. that um i know when i first went to see a naturopath and i was so sick and he, he started talking to me about gut health and i was just so new to the whole concept and I said, I suppose you want me to go home and eat a heap of salad. And and I was thinking, man, I really don't want to eat a heap of salad. It's the last thing I feel like having. He said, no, I want you to eat slow cooked. I want you to eat steamed veggies. I want you to eat, you know, the the cooked veggies will be easier for you to digest. And I was like, oh, thank goodness, because I just couldn't handle all the salads. I can handle a lot more now. But, yeah, when I was really sick, that was the last thing I wanted
3: um, Dr. T, with regards to like eating things like vegetables and um, digestion, like I uh, I come from a culture where, for instance, we braise a lot of our vegetables. We do have a lot of raw vegetables and a lot of salads mm. like that, and a lot of fermented vegetables. What
0: vegetables, vegetables in particular? Your cabbage, for instance? I mean, very few we, people eat raw cabbage I, except I, in coles.
3: Yeah, so um, we will eat a lot of uh, fresh herbs, for instance. Uh, we'll eat um, tomatoes and cucumbers fresh um we will we'll have um i guess yeah a little bit of cabbage that's that's not uncommon to have um like fresh cabbage salads i'm not really sure if the cabbage salad is a is a new addition to our diet like as a sort of middle eastern coleslaw or something like that Uh, we'll have uh, raw carrots um but but quite often what we do is we get any vegetable that we can get our hand on and um we'll just fry a little bit of uh, garlic and onions in olive oil and then we'll add the vegetable on top of that and just let it sort of cook down and absorb the olive oil and then we'll eat that hot or cold. And um, that seems to be the way that we just eat our food and even like in periods, say, of Lent where uh, people avoid eating meat, uh, these kinds of dishes that are braised in olive oil become like staple dishes for us. And um, I'm just wondering if you can sort of shine a light if if there's any kind of traditional wisdom that comes with that kind of method of cooking, or uh, is there anything that we have to be mindful of in terms of pairing up meats with sorry sorry, vegetables with a source of fat as well, or cooking it in fat?
0: So they would do this just for vegetables. I wouldn't add any meat to those dishes.
3: Quite quite often, yeah. Like you you'll have. a lot, let's say, braised uh, okra, braised beans, uh, very common. Even things like spinach will be braised in olive oil. Uh, silver beet is braised in olive oil. That's all very common um, in, in my culture. Yeah, and they eat that. That would be like Lenten food, or um, when you know, meatless Fridays, or you know, most um, Christians oh. of the country would sort of avoid eating meat on a Friday, and they will rely on those dishes.
1: And otherwise, would be a side dish.
3: Um, so, yeah, other, like th- those. Yeah, you can consider it a side dish. I mean, we don't really discriminate. We don't have, like, a oh. the idea of main and side yeah. and things like that. I mean, it's food. Um, yeah. But, yeah, so you will have, like, a really large uh, plate of that and the whole family would eat it. Um, and well, that you'd would be, have several
0: dishes on the table, wouldn't you? And people would just right. gravitate to the one that they could
3: that they mm. liked.
0: Okay. So it would be. They wouldn't be. It's not like in, you know, a French meal where the the whole thing is put in front of you, yeah. and so everyone knows what you're eating or not eating by the mm. end of the meal. With those sort of communal meals, mm. um, you pick what what you what you like or what you think will be suitable for you. Mm. Um, yeah, I would say that they're trying to find the, the least common multiple in the whole thing if all the food is raw and it's served like that then people who can't digest raw food will starve basically so they're giving a mixture of foods aren't they the par. you know when you're, you know there's various grades of of cooking a cabbage from you know leaving it yeah. intact to you yeah. know having all the leaves separate and that and how mushy it gets um, to the point where it falls apart, like a really slow cooked over hours. So they're sort of in the middle there, aren't they? Brazings the braising is in the middle. So mm-hmm. the cabbages has been denatured somewhat because it's floppy and yeah. it's absorbed the oil and the other spices that are in there.
3: That's right. So I'd it say gets that to a point where most of the water has gone, but it still retains some kind of texture and uh, mm. it, it not completely falling apart, and like from what I've read is that there's something about having fat-soluble uh, vitamins in these vegetables that, and when you add the olive oil, it mm. allows for the action of those vitamins more readily. Uh, is, that, yeah. is that just is that myth?
0: No, it's 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 probably true. I'm not sure. Yeah, it's probably true because the um, the oil will well, it's will mix together. Two oils mixed together. So you have got a, a whole lot of things going on there. Right. I was that the the cooking of that is to improve its digestibility. It, it's making it digestible, it, f, taking it from an extreme raw to somewhere in the middle, so that the the average person in that group will be able to eat it and digest it.
3: And <laughs> um, <laughs> um, we 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 do that like for flavor. So I think um, you know that you can't really eat raw okra or beans. No,
0: <laughs> um, no. Yeah. Some um, people fry the okra. The Nepalese do a dish that's like
1: That's how that. we always did. It was always fried, Crumbled yeah. fried.
3: Um, Southern America. How, how do you eat your vegetables, doctor? Do you, do you break? Do you cook them, or are you a raw raw person? Depends on the
0: vegetable. I do like salads, I do like that, Um, but in winter I'm roast vegetable.
2: Yeah.
3: Um, So you you go more with the root vegetables in winter and then you go more with the greens in in summer?
0: Or if I'm doing soups, I'll just, um, you know, slow cook them,
2: Yeah.
0: pressure cook them or or do them, you know, in the the thermomix slowly depending on the texture that you want how much mm. um, texture do you want left in a soup um, if you want it very homogenized in a pressure cooker'll do that if you still want um, basic textures you know you can put the the blade on reverse mm. so its still you know something and uh, it depends on the soup like, um, so I think we're all in agreement that certain foods need to be cooked
2: yeah yes.
0: and and I think culturally um, you know over time you, you your cooking methods adjust to get the maximum nutrition out of that
2: yeah
0: and that certain things like the Chinese avoiding raw foods suggests um, you know I, I suppose there's a couple of things there that the cuisine often represents the the other aspects of the culture. I mean, if you look at kosher foods and the kashrut, um, there's a, a combination of public health and conscious eating in those rules. Yeah. And and I think that's like that's probably the best documented of the guidelines for eating. You know, then you have halal and various other things, and they all do have that combination of public health and conscious eating. Where is my food coming from? Who provided this? Are they um, in keeping with the ideology of of my community? You know, all these types of things. And maybe in some cultures it's not quite as obvious that those things are occurring. You know, like um, the uh, certain foods that that are not to be eaten or certain foods that must be eaten or certain foods that we cook like it's a, almost a given that potatoes should be cooked isn't it mm. yes uh, they almost a given that pumpkins should be cooked
2: yeah.
0: unless you're making a pumpkin salad in which you will like three-quarters cook it so that the cubes stay intact when you add your you know your mm. if, oh, if, yeah. um, mm-hmm. spinach and your um, feta or whatever it is you're adding in that, in that salad um, so there's um, – and so why do we have that? We could eat potatoes raw. Let's say we have no way of cooking. Maybe we would eat them raw or tube, tubular, tube vegetables.
1: I always um, liked um, sweet – orange sweet potatoes grated into a salad when I was younger. I did like that.
2: So you had them raw?
1: Yeah, they're very nutty.
2: Okay.
1: <laughs> I did eat. I did Real eat quirky. potato I did eat potato raw when I was a kid too, by the way. <laughs>
0: okay. But your preference is not to have raw.
1: Yeah, is now well I think when I got sick as I got older I went away from raw. Yeah. It, my body just said I don't want raw.
0: And yet there'd be some people who've gone completely the opposite. Yeah. Direction. Yeah, that's what I They've
1: always find fascinating. Raw. Yeah. And they they say they feel so much better. And I'm like, man, I just couldn't do it. <laughs>
3: I think
0: you do your as you age your digestive tract does change. Yeah. The um, production of stomach acid decreases yeah. um, steadily after the age of forty. There have been studies to show that. So your digestive capacity, your ability to create a very low pH in mm-hmm. the um, in the stomach in the first step of denaturing of protein diminishes as you get older.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um and if you look at the, if you believe in the blood group diets, it's worse than the A blood groups. Their they curve oh, um, deteriorates faster than the O's.
1: Okay. Hmm. Interesting. I know negative.
0: <laughs> I think it's because they, yeah, the O's tend to have higher levels of stomach acid. Do you know how dogs can eat food yes. that's been out yeah. that humans probably couldn't? They, they have lots of stomach acid, really yeah. high levels, and okay. that's there to protect us. Um, but eventually I think your choices protect you. What about you, Ford? Have you you changed um, your diet over the years? Did you find that you had to eat more cooked things or more right. raw things?
3: Um, my, my main issue is really uh, the ability to metabolize carbohydrates. Um, so I'm I'm fine with raw vegetables, cooked vegetables. I'm fine with uh, eating any amount of uh, fat, any amount of meat. Uh, I actually crave it and I love eating it. Um, but when I have carbohydrates, that's when foggy mm. comes back. Um, I just can't metabolize it. I uh, probably still insulin resistant um, to a certain degree, even though I've lost 30 kilos. It's probably still something that I I struggle to deal with. But I haven't uh, really noticed any kind of appetite change towards like raw or cooked or anything like that.
0: There is a gene called the AMY gene that does code for whether people can digest carbohydrates effectively or not.
3: Right. AMY
0: you can do that from like you can do the other gene tests from the the smears of the inside of the mouth. Okay. Um so but you know, dietitians don't use those tests, Gastro- gastroenterologists don't use those tests, mm. mainstream doctors don't use those tests and yet there's research there that, that genetically some people really have this problem, if you can find the gene for it, we're just scratching the surface of that, mm. I mean there are 30,000 human genes and mm. you, you there are some places that will do the whole genome, I mean, there are places in China that will do it. Um, and as we discover more, like I think when that technology first came out, I remember reading something from the DAN conferences, to def- Defeat Autism Now, and they had some geneticists saying that they found 20 genes associated with autism. And now the number's close to a 1,000. Wow. A 1,000 out of 30,000 genes. Hmm. So you wonder, is it a disease or just a human variant like eye color
2: mm.
0: or skin color so yeah there are and i think that as we go we'll find that there are genes that determine whether how many parietal cells that you have per square centimeter in your stomach these are the ones that make the stomach acid
2: mm-hmm. and
0: there's going to be some people genetically you have very low levels um and perhaps those people are better off on cooked food and those people who have high levels and perhaps those people are better off on raw food
2: mm.
0: there's a lot of work there
1: yeah, yeah. um can i just uh, quick I, sorry you going?
3: well mine is a, a long question and it is about the vegetarians and yes that. mine too
1: mine too so you keep going
3: <laughs> so, um the the core of it for me is are there any diseases that we're seeing now uh, for instance like um IBS or Crohn's or anything like that, that, for instance, if someone is on a vegetarian diet and they're not doing it correctly, that they start seeing these diseases unfold? And then, if so, how can they recover from that while still remaining vegetarian?
1: Yeah, good question.
3: Mm.
0: I don't know if
3: there's more...
0: I haven't seen any evidence to show that, that those um, diseases are more prevalent in certain um, types having gone through IBS myself as an A blood group, I know that a high meat diet definitely aggravates my problem.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So yeah. I'm better off vegetarian or pesco vegetarian. I get my, my protein source from non land animals, as it were.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yes. So, but in the repair of things, one of the things that would be very useful is you know, how when you make a vegetable soup. There's a broth, and then there's the vegetables that are that are remaining.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Try, for instance, if you um, if you make those sort of soups in a the thermomix, you can easily pour off the broth, drink it, and see whether that sits well with you for then and the next few hours overnight. And then you can do another experiment where you blend the whole thing and you drink that soup and see whether that sits well for the next, you know, overnight. Mm-hmm. And you can work out from the two which is the more nourishing and sustainable of the of the liquids. Um, so the difference between those two is um, there's more fibre
2: mm-hmm.
0: in the blended one, and there are more amines in the blended one.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so, so the and the, other, the next thing is to to figure out what what helps heal that particular person's digestive tract. Do the veg, the vegetable broths, those pure broths, do it? Does the the blended broth do it, or do they need something more to restore the status quo? Like some people will go, ah, oh, I just went straight into sauerkraut and and kimchi mm. and kefir, and I made it all worse. Yes. Some people will will. And that maybe they overdid it. Maybe
2: yeah.
0: they shouldn't have been taking all three things four times a day. <laughs> maybe they should have um, uh, nice
1: you know, and slow. alternated
0: them. Mm. Yeah. So um, there's and then there's the amino acid called glutamine, mm-hmm. which has been used in a lot of these gut restoration powders. You know, with variations of glutamine and slippery elm glutamine aloe vera glutamine um, probiotics and it's interesting when you give those uh, to people there is a tendency to overdo it as well Mm. Um, and if you one thing that might help because the problem with glutamine is that to get that dietarily it's going to be you have to digest those foods in order to get the glutamine out. So if your problem already is digestion, yeah. eating high glutamine foods doesn't necessarily solve it.
2: Mm.
0: And the foods that have the highest glutamine, believe it or not, <clears throat> is, is wheat. Wheat has, because the gluten, that protein, is 60% glutamine. Mm. So... Um, the increase in glutamine necessarily in the diet might actually fix the problem. So, glutamine as a supplement is probably a useful thing to try on its own
2: mm-hmm.
0: and to try it at low doses. So, often you get glutamine in powders, you can buy it just about anywhere. That's and the one. tendency is to go with the higher dose, and in some people, that makes them a lot worse.
1: What's a low like dose?
0: low dose is like 100 to 500 milligrams a day but they come in powders where it's easy to give you know three to six grams a day Uh. now the problem with that higher dose if you start with that and you have leaky gut is that you really Uh, you place quite a high burden on your uh, nervous system downstream because glutamine is converted to glutamate as a monosodium glutamate Mm. and then um, converted to GABA, gamma butyric acid, which is one of your calming neurotransmitters, or L-theanine, which is another calming neurotransmitter. But some people get stuck at the glutamate point, Mm. which makes them, revs them up creates all sorts of havoc with their neurotransmitters because they've had such a massive load of glutamine get past the leaky gut and go up to their brain Mm -hmm. so the trick is to give the gut enough to heal its leaky gut so then you can take more glutamine you see what I mean because the gut's the first point at which the glutamine and the reason it works is that the intestinal wall does all these functions, you know, release enzymes, transport minerals um, across into the, you know, the, um, the splenic circulation. That, all, that's the bloodstream that goes up to the liver. It's completely isolated from the rest of the veins, mm. but it's the veins going from the intestine. Anyway, um, the you want enough glutamine to, for these intestinal cells because that's their fuel source, and the reason that in these intestines run on glutamine is it's a bit like a tugboat it'll use some you know a, a fuel that nobody else wants you know you can mix anything you like in them but you don't want it to run on glucose like everything else because if the intestine ran on glucose then none of it would get to the rest of the body It'd use the whole lot up because it's 11 meters long hmm. um, or small intestines eight and a half meters long so um, you it's got its own fuel source that is kind of like the extra the bit that nobody else wants so glutamine is what they run on the same as the kidney because it filters the sugar you know 25% of the cardiac output every time the heart pumps 25% of that blood flow goes through the kidney so if it ran on glucose you'd, you'd get hypoglycemia within a few minutes mm. it would just completely deplete the glucose so that's why those two organs use have this own their own special fuel I suppose so anyway, if you're repairing the gut, low-dose glutamine and and test it first. Um, and then just it might take quite a while to repair it at the low dose, but at least you're not exposing the rest of the body to the extra glutamine that they might not be able to cope with. Um, yeah, so 100 to 500 milligrams a day and do that mm-hmm. for um, a few months. And I don't think there's a way to get around that because the foods that you'd pick would be the ones that you'd probably react to. Mm.
2: Um,
0: and then note the symptoms. You know, if keeping a food diary is a pain, really, but it does help sometimes does. to figure things out. But always, when you're trying to analyse it, always think of the bigger picture rather than did that meal cause me a problem or was it... The, the the three meals in the 24 hours that cause the problem. For instance, the salicylates are like that. Mm. Um, these natural aspirins in the in the in our food. and That's why in my book I've got yeah. the four categories: vegans, omnivores, um, gluten-free, and salicylate-free yeah. diets. Because the salicylates are cumulative, and because you can have a whole range of them in different food. It could be that your total daily intake has exceeded what your gut and your liver can handle. Mm. So looking at the food diet, and then you go back and go, oh, I see, I had too many salicylates in the 24 hours. That's what set me
2: up.
0: Mm. Or I, I did the worst thing, and I combined two things that I had trouble eating. Like I had... Um, you know fried rice with cashews for instance or fried rice with almonds and that Mm. that combination didn't suit me
2: um
0: because i had there's a significant amount of carbohydrate in that meal plus the almonds were high in protein so i couldn't digest the two and that's where the food uncombining can sometimes help can i digest the rice on its own test that can Mm. i digest the almonds on my own do i need to have them you know soaked and Um, activated yeah overnight
1: yeah this is what I found really helpful with the GAPS diet because you just brought things in one at a time and then you left it for two or three Mm -hmm. days and it just really helped us to figure out a lot of things that we never knew bothered us (laughs) and it also helped us figure out when we could handle them
0: the GAPS is a a bit like trial and error in a lot of ways it's like whether raw Mm -hmm. food works better than You know, um, cooked food, and because you don't know what your starting point is, you know that Mm. there's something wrong, but you don't know exactly what it is.
2: Yeah.
0: And in some ways, you know, embarking on something like that for such long term, if it's not, you know, uh, if people want to try that, it's an enormous amount of of mental effort to be (laughs) on that diet. And, and all the other things and whether everyone should be on that diet or just one person in the family be mm-hmm. on that diet. And same with gluten-free. Um, and, you know, yeah. I've always I've read the book The Second Brain and The GAPS Diet because The Second Brain was the, the precursor to that. It's written by somebody else. Mm-hmm. And you can see the wisdom of it. Although what really needs to happen, I suppose, is to do a comprehensive digestive stool analysis first Mm -hmm. just because some people you know if you've got overgrowth of particular bacteria in there um klebsiella and citrobacter and some of these i don't think the gaps diet will solve that Mm -hmm. the worst stool sample i ever saw was someone who had done gaps for two years prior to it so they didn't get a lot of value from that because they didn't know what the starting point, they didn't know how bad the starting point was. Mm, Whereas very... yeast, probably, if you had if your problem was high yeast, which is much less frequent than I ever thought.
2: Okay.
0: I know a lot of people go, oh, you got yeast, you got candida, et cetera, et cetera. But the reality is from both the bioscreen and the neutropath stool sample tests, very few people have yeast as an issue. Okay. Very few, like you know, five, ten percent, maybe not even that. The the issues were something else. So um, the the considering how long it would take, if you worked out how much is a gap diet going to cost me over a year,
2: mm,
1: um, might as well get the, the tests, <laughs> three
0: hundred and seventy dollars or whatever they are, um, three hundred eighty dollars for these stool sample tests is actually. Um, Good value because it 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 might you might not do gaps at mm-hmm. least at the start if you find that you had uh, an issue with um, you know with these imbalance you know uh, overgrowth of certain bacteria,s and in those tests in the comprehensive stool digestive analyses you also find out what it is you're not digesting and there are so many times where you find a patient maldigesting digesting protein they have a build up of the the residues of non-digested protein, which then, in fact, fuel the growth of of bacteria that shouldn't be there in those numbers. It's like stagnant water and mosquitoes. Mm -hmm. So the short-term answer may well be to give an antibiotic for the Klebsiella or the Citrobacter. But the long-term thing would be to improve their protein digestion, even if you have to give them enzymes for a while. Mm -hmm. sometimes that might be because they were low in zinc for a long time and so we know that people who are low in zinc do have issues of protein digestion you do see a buildup of of undigested protein in their intestinal you know stock as it were Um, so then that will come back you know to zinc if you get their zinc levels right and they still have trouble with protein digestion could it be that they are genetically prone to that problem and I think some people are, or has something happened to them that has changed it. And I, when I look back at all the really serious patients who had, you know, more than irritable bowel, you know, they were going on to inflammatory bowel disease. They had issues like gastroparesis, where their stomach just wouldn't empty on on demand from the nervous system, the vagus nerve.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, almost all of them had had glandular fever prior to that. Mm. Epstein-Barr causes a lot more trouble in the intestinal tract than what we realize. It's notorious for causing hepatitis and enlargement of the spleen. If you've got someone who really had glandular fever, you don't press on their spleen very hard when you're examining them because you can rupture it. Wow. You know, there's these rules. Yeah, that's right. So it's a systemic disorder. It's not just a sore throat and the glands and
1: i do have a question for you about i don't know if this is the right time to ask it but someone did ask me if i could ask you how because you you had chronic fatigue didn't you yeah and um she was saying um that they had glandular fever and then chronic fatigue and what what did you do to recover what helps
0: um in my particular instance i realized that um, I was on a high meat diet when I was, you know, post glandular fever and an A blood group, and that's the worst combination because mm-hmm. you're low stomach acid to start with. And I'm pretty sure when I look, when I link it back, the the high meat diet that I was on was definitely detrimental. I was like a salmon swimming upstream. Mm-hmm. And it, it was aggravating. The reason I got so sick, I'm pretty sure, was because I was zinc deficient.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So I was eating the wrong foods, the wrong you know, time of day, all that kind of thing. And then when I cut meat out, that allowed me to digest my food better. I got my zinc levels up. This is looking in retrospect, because I, I had no idea
2: mm-hmm.
0: at the time why I was improving. And then also because I... I'd moved away from home, I was choosing my own foods. And I think when you, you know, you do your own shopping and your own cooking, even though I was 17, um, you start to make um, choices that are more um, pertinent to yourself and not just that's what the family's going to eat tonight. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: So I think perhaps inadvertently I, I improved the problem without realizing what I'd done. So yeah, as I built up my zinc levels, um, mm. I started to improve because because when you've got that problem, you tend to catch, you get very run down very yeah. quickly, and you tend to catch what's going around. Um, and so, other things like getting enough sleep, um, yeah. that was important, and choosing your own food
2: mm. in your
0: own time frame. Um, those things happened. And that's how I came out of it, I think.
1: Do you think people should have a certain test done to figure out what the foods are that they should choose to help them with choosing foods if they don't know?
0: It's a hard question because you're seeing the effect of your problem and everyone turns it around to say that is the cause of your problem.
2: Okay. Like if you find
0: that you're not digesting, you know, wheat and dairy, is that really the cause of your problem? If you're making immunoglobins to those things, is that the cause of it or is that the consequence of your problem? Mm. And I think the tendency is that everyone says that that's the cause of your problem. So if you stay off those things, you'll be fine for life. Yeah. But I think there has to be further analysis of that. Could they be the consequences of it? I mean, I guess with, with, I actually, it's really funny because um, a few months ago I went to a town called mm-hmm. as a just to to see what the place was like. And I had lunch with one of the GPs there. And we were talking about diets and things, and he's very much into this. It
1: wasn't Oscar, was it? Yeah. I uh, love Oscar. <laughs>
0: yeah. He's and great. We were talking about, um, meat and reactions to that and he said oh i can't have um red meat because i react to it and he said it's to do um with a tick bite and i said oh
2: Hmm.
0: is that um the the alpha um galactose is that's that's the lone star tick syndrome remember we're talking about that in the podcast
2: Yeah, yeah yeah
0: Yeah, and he said, he looked at me like, wow, how the hell do you know (laughs) something like that because that's sort of more an American disease. But what happened is that he can't eat certain foods that have this alpha-galactose and it's because normally that sugar should never, ever, 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 ever enter the bloodstream because it's Mm. a known immunostimulant. Mm. But the ticks, will, if they inject you with that, because they've been feeding on on mm. on other animals that have that they have that in their, their venom whatever it is that they stick into you that goes into your bloodstream and then you become sensitized to alpha galactose for the rest of your life wow it's like a vaccination
1: yeah
0: um so the um, if you were to test someone then you'd say oh you're allergic to red meat you know um, all these different animals um and therefore that's the cause of your problem but it actually isn't it's the consequence of the problem and the consequence is that you've been abnormally sensitized to alpha-galactose hmm. so if that's one of the sugars that we know of that's innate in a food that we eat how many others that we don't know of? yeah um but anyway coming back to you know if you're doing IgE or igg testing sure in the short term you can you can perhaps reduce the immune load on your body while you're trying to repair it. Mm. But be mindful that many of these things are the effect rather than the cause of the problem.
1: Yeah. So, so those- yeah, I
0: know some people do that. They'll do the stool samples. They'll do, you know, the IgG, IgE, and even IgA testing, and then they'll go on a food exclusion diet. But then after a few months, of patient go. I'm a bit sick of this. Why can't yeah. I eat these things? You know, How long do I have to do that? Would the food exclusion diet actually make some nutrient deficiencies worse?
2: Yeah.
0: The best example is salicylate deficiency, mm. salicylate intolerance, because if you go on a truly salicylate, low salicylate diet, you're highly likely to get vitamin C deficiency. Wow. Because the vitamin C is, is, is mm.
1: the, the sources
0: vitamin C are often high-salicylate foods. Yeah. So you, it's hard to do that long-term. There's yeah. very few. If you read, when I was researching this in the section on vitamin C and salicylate, um, low-salicylate diets, the list is really short. It's sort of like a list of iodine foods for vegans.
2: Mm.
0: It's really, really limited. So you've got to pay attention to that if, if you're on a low-salicylate diet. So the question then is, if you if somebody does react to salicylates and you've proven it, um, that's the effect of their problem. So what's the cause of their problem? Yeah. Uh, you know, are they genetically prone to salicylate intolerance? Have, have they been on a diet that's generally high in salicylates? Like, you know, Thai food is very high in salicylates. Italian food, high in salicylates. Um, did something happen to... Uh, reduce the the capacity to digest salicylates. We know that, that stomach acid destroys a lot of things, including pesticides, food colorings, additives, these kind of things.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: That's what it's for. It's a defense system. The Chinese call it the fire, hmm. um, the crucible. Anything survives that, then gets hit with something else. So p- people with low stomach acid are more likely to not to have a, a salicylate intolerance. Mm. And then further down, if there are salicylates, could cross the intestinal border and that would be worse than someone with um, leaky gut. Mm. So you've got the next, and you've got like it's three wicker keeper, in it. The first wicker keeper um, is the stomach. The second wicker keeper is the intestinal border. And then even if the salicylates get up that bloodstream, the portal vein going up to the liver. The liver has another wicked keeper that says, Wait a second, you guys aren't going into the systemic circulation because we know what aspirins do in the bloodstream. They're going to mess up prostaglandin and prostacycline. And if you get into the brain, you're going to block glycine. So we don't want that. So you guys are just staying here. So the liver just captures all the salicylates. And the way it gets rid of it, it says, right, now, what binds well with salicylate that we can send out into the bile that won't come back? Ah, glycine. Yes, we've got plenty of that. So we're going to bind the salicylate with glycine. Um, and and that salicyl glycine is the way we get rid of this, the salicylate. So that's the last wicker keeper. So if you are glycine deficient, don't have enough of that amino acid just sitting around in your pantry, as it were. Um, you, you that's your last wicker keeper, and that's when the salicylates all those three mechanisms have to fail before you get you know behavioral disorders with salicylates. Right?
1: I'm just actually I had that page open in your book, and I was just looking at it while you were talking about it. It's very helpful. This book, just going back to your book, <laughs> it's very pictorial. Yeah. It gives you, um, it's like got. Cartoons. I like cartoons. <laughs> no, it's good.
0: I, I couldn't really cover helps. everything, but there's enough in there to have an aha moment, and yeah, says, oh, oh, I've got to right. look that up. You that's know, right. Oh, and then they look up the research. And, this goes right.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, you know, so I've been on this low so like diet. I've now got scurvy. What do I do next? Kind of thing. So mm. then they have to take up, you know, some vitamin C to counteract that. But the, the, you know. And even the food colourings, you know, we consume five kilograms of food colourings and additives and flavour enhancers every year in this country. Oh. Why are we reacting to these now and not 30 years ago when Food Standards Australia in, allowed tartrazine and, yeah. and you know, G and erythrocine and, um, uh, you know, amaranth and all those food culture and all these things. Why are we reacting to them now and not back then? Why do we have peanut allergy now and not back then? Why is it the countries that consume 10 times the peanuts per capita, like India, hardly ever see peanut allergy? There's some weird stuff going on out there. Um, And I think it's the deterioration in digestive health. Yeah. Why are we seeing adult diseases in children? Now, Fiona Stanley was screaming at all this when I was a medical student. Nobody ever gave her an answer. Mm -mm. But, um, you know, I've seen two children with with six-year-olds with rheumatoid arthritis wow. to kids six and nine with Crohn's disease I mean oh, what the,
1: really
0: that was unheard of
2: what,
0: what what alarm bills what other alarm bills do we need mm. you know, we want to see prostate cancer in a two-year-old
2: wow. you know, do yeah. we have
0: to see that to get the wake-up call and it's not just nutrient elements it's not just toxins it's it's and it's not just the genetics it's, there's a another thing that's deteriorated or change in that time and it has to be the gut and the mm. biodiversity of the intestinal flora the rise in cesarean rates the increased use in, of antibiotics
2: mm-hmm.
0: uh, there's a whole pandora of issues that created and that's very hard from like a public health system to go well what do we tackle first yeah how do we tackle this or should we just wait for the disease to happen and throw money at it? Yeah.
1: Well, mm. yeah, we're all trying to do our bit to help people realise this and we probably should finish up here because we've been going for a little while. But um, did you have anything you wanted to quickly say, Fuad, or add or ask?
3: I just want to say that having gone through dr. T's book it's it's fascinating and all this information which could sound like really really difficult to uh, absorb all at once um, the book really does the best job possible of making this approachable to us and making it something that we can take in even though we don't have too much of a handle on the science it mm-hmm. really brings the science and I encourage anyone who really takes their health seriously to buy this book and have a look at it and um, you'll be able to start making uh, links to your own health very, very quickly and you have great tips to start improving your own health from the ground up. And I, I really love this book and I encourage any, everyone to have a look at it.
1: Yeah, it's available through Thermomix, is that right? Thermomix in Australia?
3: Yes, they can. Uh, you can either get it through the
0: consultant or it's going to be on their eShop um, okay. in the next few weeks. Cool. So,
1: and, and for those of you with a thermix, it also has um, suggestions for different recipes to use um, for the different minerals and vitamins and things that you are trying to increase in your diet. So that's really practical. It's great. Yeah,
0: you don't have to have a Thermomix to get <SSSSSSSR> <No, read SSSSR> something not. out of this book. But <SSSSR> no. but if it, you do... <SSSSR> it does have suggestions. Um, <laughs> it, it does link in with, <SSSSR> mm. with the recipe books. Uh, yeah, it was really just to get people thinking. You, know, mm. you can use that. It's at various levels of understanding from just simply, right, well, we're going to get more. I've read some of the Willow and selenium. we're going to get more in our meals from now on. So you could just say, that's right, right, that's yeah. my resource. Yeah. Or you could use it and say, wait a second, you know, this these issues I've had with the salicylates in my gut. I've got to look further into that because... Mm. I can visualise now why it's happened, and then that will be the springboard to the next sort of research. So
2: yep.
0: it's it's sort yep. of like a triage to say, well, go, look around here, look at these yeah. stool samples and and things. So
2: mm-hmm. it's
0: very broad, and it's, it's broad. That's why it took a while to put put a sort of piece it all together. I could but...
1: imagine. <laughs> yeah, it would have. Mm-hmm. That's very well done. Well, it's thank beautiful. You,
0: thank you for your praises.
1: Yeah, it's good. <sighs> Well, thank you so much for answering questions for us. As usual, we end up with 100 more, but we better stop. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, ha- we'll have to... We we keep saying every time we have you on, we're like, we're going to have to get you back because we have more questions. But um, <laughs> can you just let people know where they can find you? If they ha- go to your website, do you- you've got some information on there?
0: Um, yeah, in terms of like general stuff really the nutrition review service website it's got um like basically what i do now Mm -hmm. that's um
1: and your practice
0: what's the link to that it's just nutritionreviewservice.com.au okay that's good
1: yeah and otherwise and you've got your books um your kindle ebooks on there haven't you
0: um no that yeah. they um i haven't got oh uh, they may be on the link the the point walter pharmacy has all my books including the links to the kindle books okay um well, you can walter go on pharmacy. amazon
1: can't you? you can also search on amazon
0: you can go straight to amazon and yeah. get the three three books um that way
1: and then there's staying healthy is through dynamics yeah that's the latest one Okay. Well, I'll put some links um, on the article anyway, so people can find them. And if anyone has any more questions of where to find Dr. Igor's work, um, just ask on the Facebook pages, Quirky Cooking or Quirky Cooking Chat Group. Um, and Fuad's page is the Food Blog. Oh, sorry, you use the Fuad Kasab now, don't you? I got mixed up. Well,
3: the dot com dot I is good too. Yeah. Um, before we go, Jodie, do you want to tell everyone about how you're going with the gaps program and the book?
1: Yes, okay. Um, so we we're, we're just about um, we're just over a thousand members with the program and we're um, finding a lot of people uh, getting a lot of help from it. So if you're interested in learning a bit more about healing the gut, um, you can go to gaps.quirkycooking.com.au. dot au. And then we also have a cookbook that we're working on, Fuad and I, and that is just about, well, very soon in a month, it'll be ready for pre ordering. So, Unless
3: on the 1st of July actually. Yeah. We're, we're pre-order. So, keep your uh, eyes peeled. Uh, we'll be sharing across social media uh, when the book is ready for uh, pre purchasing. Yeah. And we'll be offering free shipping for anyone who orders during the, the pre sales period. and Uh, we'll also be giving a 10% discount if you order 10 or more books. So that's in addition to free shipping. So it's a really good deal and it helps us a lot to get this book going and to make it the best book we can possibly make it as well. So your support would be greatly appreciated.
1: And if you're wondering what kind of book it is, it's um, the kind of foods that we've found have really healed our families and just delicious, healthy meals. So I think everyone will love it. There'll be something for everyone. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Igor. We so love having you on the show. It's always it's always very interesting, and we always learn heaps. So thank you so oh, much. Thank
0: you for having me.
1: Thanks, Dr. Igor. Okay. And um, we'll talk to you again soon. Okay. Thanks, everybody, and we'll see you on the next podcast.